Say hi to spring's most amazing style steal at Old Navy. One day only, today. Women's tanks are just $2. And don't forget to come in now to redeem your super cash. Hurry in. High fashion, Old Navy. Valid 429, limit 5 per customer. Select styles in stores only. Blog Talk Radio. tackle some difficult topics sometimes and sometimes not so difficult. Today is one of those days where it's a not so difficult topic to talk about. It's actually an exciting topic to talk about and I'm very pleased to have my guest Julie Airy. Julie? It's Julia. I keep calling you Julie. Either works. Okay. (laughs) You know my father always used to say you can call me anything you want as long as you don't call me late for dinner. So I guess I've inherited that <laughs> from him. <laughs> Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're here to talk about a book you wrote. Was this your first book, Julia? We are. And before I say anything, thanks again for having me on the radio to talk about the book. I'm always really excited to share the story. Um, this is my first book that I wrote myself. Um, as a younger person, I was also published in some poetry anthologies, but um, those were with other authors. So this is my first solo uh, enterprise you know it's funny you say the poetry anthology because when i was young i was i was published in a couple of anthologies as well for poetry and a couple years ago um i was just published in another anthology and i was talking to my adult daughter and i said yeah i said i'm in this uh, you know they they put me in this this poetry anthology and i'm kind of excited about it because it's been years since i've been in in an anthology And my Mm -hmm. daughter went, oh, it's been years since I was in an anthology. (laughs) (laughs) But did you buy a copy of the anthology? That's the question. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. There we go. (laughs) So that's why God gave us children, lest we get uh, swollen heads over anything, you know, to keep us in perspective. (laughs) Um, So I, too, am in those anthologies. Love those anthologies, Julia. This is different from poetry, though. This is uh, an historical biography. It's not fiction, although it certainly could be. I think it would make one heck of a, uh, a historical story. Let's, before we actually start talking about the book and the woman about whom uh, this story is written, let's talk a little bit about you. You weren't walking down the street in New York and stumbled on this story. You were in a foreign country. What were you doing there? So I was attending university in the Netherlands. I was at a liberal arts college in the south of the country. And while I was there, I was looking to pick up a part-time job or two to help pad the expenses. And so I found an advert in the, I think it was the school newspaper even, which at that time um, wasn't really widely read. And this advert said that there was a woman in the town. It's it's not really a town. It's a, it's a small city. It's called Middleburg. And in Middleburg, there's this woman who said, Um, I need some help cleaning my house, and I speak English, so if we have English-speaking students at this university, they're welcome to to help me out, and, you know, no language barrier. So I said, oh, this sounds great, and um, I actually remember at the time that I had a a broken foot that I was recovering from, and I was still on a cast, and uh, it made getting around the city a little bit difficult, because sometimes 
their publication, public transportation didn't go to all the parts of the city and they didn't go to her house. So I had to crutch my way there. And I remember thinking <laughs> that day that I really, I really didn't want to do it because Europeans use those geriatric crutches, which are a real, real pain in the butt for long distances. Um, and I was thinking canceling and just canceling the whole job. And I'm, I'm glad I went anyway, because otherwise this ne- never would have happened. But, well, so um, you took this job as a, as a struggling student. You took the job to make some money, right? I did. I took the job to make some money, and what I found out was that she um, she definitely did need some help tidying things up. But whereas I think most people, especially older people, they struggle with things like you know getting the clothes out of the laundry and folding them and, and that sort of day-to-day tidying up, she didn't really need help with that. She had nurses for that. What she did need help for was all these photos and all these documents that were historical photos and documents from her family and from her life that she had collected and, and she had also inherited over the years. And they were just um, very unorganized because she, she was, uh, her sight was failing her and, and her hearing was as well. By the time that I had met her, she was about 90. And so whenever I came there, I was like, oh, um, you know, we'll go through this album together and we'll put this together. But instead, what happened every time I went over there was that she would sit me down and she would say, you know, at one time in 1935, and <laughs> before we knew it, um, the time that I had was gone. And this happened so many times that what I realized was she she wanted to tell her story to someone and she wanted to, to be able to um, let it not pass on without her, I think. And so my job there sort of transitioned from what would I what I would describe as like a house cleaner organizer into a storyteller, and that's sort of where this all starts. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that I was so um, uh, interested in this story. I feel as you know a, a no longer spring chicken myself. I'm beginning to appreciate not only my own story and my need to tell it, but also other people's stories. It seems like when I was young, I was too busy to worry about anybody's story except perhaps my own. <laughs> but, but as I age, I am realize everybody has a story, and those stories are important. And they're important not just to that individual, but to society in general. Did you come away, I mean, you're a lot younger than I am, but did you kind of come away from this experience thinking that? Yeah, I did. Um, I also, I mean, in, in a more macro sense as well, at the time I was a law and linguistics student and I was sort of struggling on to which one I was going to go into, um, neither of which have great jobs prospects, of course, but this experience really turned me on to journalism and it's the reason why I'm a reporter today because I realized that my bread and butter of law and linguistics was always the story aspect and I wanted to um, I wanted to make that my career and I wanted to, to live a life based on telling people stories and finding them and, and, and the art of, of really doing that. Um, so I think in a very real sense it has um, it has really deepened my understanding of the value of stories and how that there's a material value to that, sure, but there's also this immaterial sense of this is truly yeah. what enriches um, our understanding of places and people and, you know, forever on for me, going to this town of Middleburg is going to remind me of my whole college experience, but particularly this woman and her family story, which ties into this town. And I think when we start learning places as they're relevant to people in our lives, they're, they're become much more than brick and mortar. It's about the history of places. And that's, um, you know, if you want to talk about not losing history and how do we teach history to kids and future generations, I think we have to do it through storytelling because that's how our brains are sort of wired to remember and to process things, especially difficult things, um, which in this case is, is largely the, the World War II aspect, I think. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about this book. Now, what fascinated me about this book is um, I'm old enough. I mean, I, I was. I'm not. I'm not so old. I was born during World War II. I mean, it was after World <laughs> War II was way over. Right. Um, but I do. You know, I did. I was kind of saturated as a child in that whole post World War II um, thinking and and political environment and that kind of thing. So when you say World War II to me, I think like many people do of battles. Um, I think of, uh, uh, you know, the atomic bomb. I think of Pearl Harbor. You know, I think of those things when you say World War II. I don't think of a woman sitting in the Netherlands. I don't think that way. Um, And usually if I think of people in World War II, I'm thinking of war heroes and soldiers and men. So what appealed to me about your book is that, first of all, it's about a woman and a woman's life, and she's not an extraordinary woman. She does extraordinary things, but she's a regular woman. She's not uh, somebody that was raised um, to be a queen or, you know what I'm saying? Although what's interesting about that is she actually um, she actually is descendant from royalty in Indonesia, but but you're right, she's not someone of great importance to... um, to the larger scheme of the war, certainly in the political construct at the time, she's she's not a key player in the war, um, and I think often we do we do learn um, battles around the key players and them who are the generals, you know, who's commanding the armies, um, perhaps who's leading a resistance is the closest we really get to understanding the more civic mind of a war. Um, mm-hmm. So for me as well, this was interesting to really get it from a civilian's perspective. Um, and uh, this was something that we spoke about earlier, but getting the civilian perspective on the Pacific is also something that as Americans we don't um, have a lot of exposure to with World War II. I think that the focus for many younger people today, it was different for me because, as uh, you know, I mean, I grew up in that post-World War II era, but what I saw with my children and with young people that I see today, the focus seems to be on the European front and much less mm-hmm. on the Asian front. So Definitely. were you surprised by that but when this woman started sharing her story with you? Was it surprising to you? Well, you know, it's a, it was a really interesting thing to write this in the Netherlands because, of course, the Netherlands has um, very direct ties with World War II, and, and the war was brought to the country. Of course, the country capitulated under um, Nazi control, and, and it, was, uh, it was occupied during the war. Um, so I am surrounded, at the, at the same time as writing this book, I'm surrounded by those memorials and those relics in the city. There, there was a, um, a large encasing of a bomb um, in iron as a, as a monument in the middle of the city, and I passed by it all the time. And I also rode on a train that uh, deported Jewish people from the city into death camps in, in other localities. So I, at the same time being surrounded by the European front of the war, um, I was also digging very deeply into the Pacific ties. And, of course, the Netherlands, uh, for those who, who aren't as familiar with, with Dutch history, the Netherlands was a major colonial power um, before England was, actually. The Dutch Golden Age, it's referred to. And among its many colonies, Indonesia, what, what we know now as Indonesia, was its sort of main uh, lucrative colony. And uh, Indonesia gained independence after World War II. So there, there were ties prior to the war between the Netherlands and Indonesia. And so the Pacific War, although geographically was quite removed from Europe, in the Netherlands it was felt strongly. Um, and, and there were very large repercussions between the two. So to me, 
um, I really felt like everything was sort of tying together and coming together in these in these unconnected facts that I had learned in, in history classes or whatnot in high school had really um, begun to make sense, I guess, because it, it was it was no longer, you know, an isolated timeline of events or, or a group of key players, but it was starting to become a tapestry, if if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And you um, offered uh, me a, a wonderful opportunity um, to actually hear some of the audio from your interviews with this woman. That woman sure did not sound like she was in her 90s. She had the strength in her voice, the the you know her vocabulary i mean she just was uh, you could tell this woman was a powerful woman her whole life uh personally she was powerful. she was also about uh she was about four foot ten <laughs> she was a very uh very diminutive in stature but you would never know that from listening to her voice and she up until the day she died she was fluent in english malay actually two different kinds of malay french and dutch and she held a very um capacity of all of those languages, um, never accidentally switching. It, it was uh, it, a very remarkable woman in, in a lot of respects. Yeah. It, what fun for you to meet an older woman who is remarkable like that. I mean, that that's a, a great opportunity, I think. Um, okay, so let's talk about this woman. Um, her name was uh, Martha, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you met her as a student. You were a student, and she was clearly um, in her 90s. And what was your first impression of Martha? So my first impression was the first day I went to her house under the um, auspices of cleaning her house, which, of course, we know never happened. <laughs> um, and I, I crushed Martha. I think what actually happened was I went up to her room, which took me a little while to find in the complex it was in, and I had my crutch with me, and I was you know, making a lot of noise. And... I ring the doorbell and she's already at the door and she, she pulls it open. And she says, geez, you make more noise than I do. And she had a walker at the time. Um, <laughs> so that, that was the first time I, I ever spoke to her. I ever saw her. And um, I, I'm, she, she had this way that I think everyone who's, who's met this woman and, and I've introduced a few of my friends to her um, during my college years. She had this way of being very direct and very uh, powerful in, in what she said and what she felt in, the, in her opinions. Um, and she never really seemed to care what you thought of it one way or another. She was going to go ahead and she was going to do her thing. Um, and she had a very uh, strong, strong will. Um, another time, I remember a couple months after I had met her, I walked into her house for our, our weekly meeting and she was sitting with her iPad on her armchair and she looks up and she says, come in here, come in here. And so I, I, get, I sit down next to her in, in my little armchair. And she gets really close to me, and she, her sight was uh, was uh, depleting very quickly at that point, so she really leaned in very close when she spoke to me. And she said, have you heard of the Snowden guy? And I was like, Edward Snowden? And she goes, yes, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> so she had uh, she, she stayed up with the news. She um, and, and her, her faculties, her mental faculties, um, she was – uh, a, a very remarkable person to talk to. She could really hold her own. Wonderful, wonderful. So tell me her story. And I, I should throw out our phone number here. Um, if you would like to ask Julia some questions about her process or her experience, or as we talk about Martha, if you'd like to ask questions about Martha, please give us a call, 646-378-0430. That's 646 646- 
or head to the chat room and type in a question or comment, and I'll be happy to share it. Okay, so tell me about Martha. Right, so Martha, her name is Martha Arnschutz. Her family was originally Austrian from Vienna, the capital of Austria, and they migrated to the Netherlands in the mid-1800s. Uh, this is her father's side. Her father became an admiral in, uh, in the Dutch army, and he was part of the colonial army, so he was stationed in what we now know as Indonesia. The Dutch at that time called it the colonies. He was stationed on a remote set of islands, um, and he was responsible for helping be the liaison between um, the ruler of the islands and some of the, the mainland Dutch um, uh, academy officers. He ended up falling in love with the daughter of the ruler, who's called a Raja, and I don't know how, and I wish I could have gotten information on this, but he somehow convinced this Raja to give him permission to marry her daughter, his daughter, um, and together they had a family. They had uh, six kids. Martha is one of those kids, and so she was actually raised in Indonesia. They moved uh, close to the mainland by Java. Um, so she was raised there. She was, you know, long story short, she was taken to Holland uh, twice in her life um, as, a, as a younger child and then as a teenager, um, as a um, middle-aged teenager, uh, 14, 15, I think it was. That's when World War II broke out. Um, and that was, a, without giving too much away, that was a very big disruption to the family um, and certainly to the colonies. Um, and so after the war, uh, shortening the story here a little bit, after the war, she moved back to Holland with the rest of the family. Um, she took a job in Paris for a while. Eventually, she emigrated to Canada, and she lived in Canada for, for many decades. Um, she actually returned to the Netherlands as an elderly person. She was in her 70s, uh, I think late 60s or 70s, by the time she finally came back. And that's where she spent the remainder of her days. So she really, her life was one of travel and one of adventure, um, not always by her choice, but she, um, she certainly made the rounds. Okay. Did she have children? She did not have children, no. Okay. All right. So, okay. So let's talk about Martha's story. So you laid the groundwork here. She has had, uh, she sounds like she came from a relatively wealthy family. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, she ended up, how did, how did she live in World War II? What happened to her in World War II? So World War II was tricky in the colonies, and to give this, I have to give a little bit of a backstory. Um, I am not a historical expert. I also want to preface this with, and if there are people who really want to know uh, much more about the history of the colonies during the war, I'm happy to recommend some, some greater detailed resources. But essentially what you need to know to understand Martha's story is that the colonies were under Dutch rule at the time of the war. However, um, this also meant that people in the colonies could be drafted into the war and sent to fight Japan or uh, somewhere even sent to Europe. So uh, although they were removed, they were still involved in the war. As I said earlier, the Netherlands eventually capitulated under the Nazi regime. So when that happened and the Dutch government essentially fell, the colonies were left defenseless and they were left without a central government. What happened to them was that the Japanese occupied uh, the territories. So in terms of Martha's story, what happened to her was that um, both her brothers were conscripted into the Dutch army, and her father was reconscripted um, at the time he had retired from the army, and then he uh, had to go back in. Um, so 
the men of her family were in the war. The women in her family uh, managed to stay relatively free until the capitulation happened of the Dutch government. Once that happened and once uh, what we now know as Indonesia was colonized sort of temporarily by the Japanese, then uh, everyone was put into these camps, uh, these, these Japanese internment camps, I suppose she could call them. So Martha was put into these camps with uh, her mother and her sisters. Her father was in a separate camp and her brothers were elsewhere. Um, she ended up escaping from her camp because the family had not heard from the father in a very long time, and she was very worried about him. And she knew in a relative sense where he might be, where the camp might be located, but it was about 3,000 miles away from her. So what she did was she broke out of the camp, and then she collected letters from the women in the camp who thought that they might have male relatives in this other camp she was seeking. So she had this big bundle of letters to hypothetically be delivered to these men if she could find them. And she went on a train by herself, um, and she traveled this entire way, and she ended up finding the camp, and she persuaded the guards to let her in. And I believe she did that by um, being very cute, and she was very, very cute at the time, and she still was when I met her. Um, but she also made them, uh, I think it was, I think it was cranes. It was origami. She, she would make them little bits of origami and it made the Japanese soldiers really happy because they were homesick at the time. They had been stationed there for a long time. And before that they were um, also fighting in the war. So they had been gone from their home in Japan for, for many years at that point. And she would sort of bribe them with these little paper origami figures that she had made. And eventually they led her into the camp to see her father um, and to see all of her neighbors, her, her, her male neighbors that she had grown up with, and she was able to deliver the letters. And then um, her father thought she was going to leave. And instead, what she did was um, she she gathered furniture from some of the broken down houses in this camp, and then she fixed up one of these houses. And she sort of lived in there, and she helped, um, helped the men cook and helped them keep up with the daily activities. And then... Um, she did that until the end of the war and then helped her father get reunited with the rest of the family. So that's, um, that's, that's sort of the long and short of it, but it, it was a very, um, I think a very anxious time for her. And, and when she spoke about it to me, she was always, um, it, it was punctuated by these, you know, moments of joy, like when she found her father and her face sort of lit up when she was telling me about this moment. But there was these other moments where she was much more subdued than she normally was. And I could tell that, Although she wouldn't share all the details with me, these were some very tense um, moments of her life. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, to say that she just up and left an internment camp and traveled 3,000 miles on her own, I mean, this was in an era when women didn't typically travel on their own, um, either because of social requirements and certainly because of danger. How did she negotiate getting... 3,000 miles away. I mean, wasn't she stopped? Wasn't she questioned? Didn't she face, um, you know, imminent arrest for doing that? How did she explain that to you? You know, this is one of the things, the few things that I was never able to eke out a lot of details on her. Um, <laughs> because what what I wrote the book from was largely her interviews. So, so the text that you read in the book is really verbatim what she's told me, and I've changed a few things for spelling or, or what have you, but it's essentially her words, um, but there were limitations to that. Um, although her memory was very sharp, some things did escape her, and when that happened, usually I could fall back on her documents and I could you know, pull out a date or I could pull out the location that she couldn't quite remember and I could substitute that in and, and the story went on. 
Um, but there were a few moments that just I never was able to get the details of, and this is one of them, and I really wish um, she could have remembered. She did. She told me that she told me that she took a train for most of the way, but I know that the train didn't go. It wasn't a direct route, so I think she must have taken um, she must have taken at least two boats um, to separate the train ride. So I know that she had had some money left over from before the female side of her family was interned. I'm assuming she used that money as bribes. Um, I also know during during the internment with her mother, her mother had uh, stolen light bulbs from their house before that they were evicted from their house, and she used light bulbs to trade for things. Um, she used them to trade for meat, and she used them to trade for diapers, which she gave to other women who had young children. I think Martha might have taken some of these light bulbs with her and traded them along the way. Um, light bulbs. It was certainly, yeah, it, it was certainly a mix of bribes and goods and probably a little bit of stowaways from what I understand from her, but I, I wish I had the concrete details of, of that whole journey. Do you think that there was um, um, sometimes women, especially older women, are, are, are would not openly share information if perhaps there had been any kind of assault or um, if, if she'd had to barter things that normally wouldn't be bartered? You know what I'm alluding to here, right? Right, right, and and that certainly might have been a possibility. And you know the the problem with doing memoirs and biographies is that you never get the whole like. A platonic truth, as it were, out of the person because this stories are, are messy and they get tangled with time. Um, I will say that based on the pictures that I had seen at the time, you know, she, she was very pretty, but she had short hair, as was fashionable in the 30s and 40s. Um, and I think she could have passed as a boy if she had uh-huh. worn trousers, which I had seen some pictures of her in the Netherlands where that was a little bit more kosher, I think, to wear trousers. If she had done that, um, I would have bet that she could have tucked, you know, a little bit of her hair into a cap and, and passed. Because she, she, what she looked like was one of her brothers. Actually, they had a very similar face. Um, uh-huh. So if I were to guess, I think it was, again, she was probably bribing and, and trading, but also disguising herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But think of, I mean, think of the resources, the internal resources that she had to draw from to do that. Um, again, this was a time where women didn't just go off and do things on their own. Um, you know, I mean, they even went to the bathroom in pairs, you know what I mean? Um, women were um, not encouraged at that time to be independent in any way, um, or at least most women generally. So think about the internal resources that this woman had to draw from to buck that the those social conventions that she was probably raised with um and actually you know just just do everything from literally traveling alone well i i just came back from uh, uh, a 6600 mile um uh, drive cross country drive on my own and i actually ran into two different women along my route, you know, that I struck up a conversation with who were absolutely shocked that I was doing, in this day and age, a cross-country drive by myself. It's, it well, was you just had your dog as, with you, right? 
I did, yeah. Um, but it was perceived as, as, you know, wow, adventuresome or brave or whatever, and I never thought of it as any way. Well, this is, you know, 60 years after World War II, and, and right. you know, there's still that reaction somewhat to a woman who's doing any kind of adventure on her own. There's still a, a little bit of a, woo. I can only imagine 60 years ago that her social conventions at that time did er- everything to discourage a woman doing anything like that on her own, and yet here she was forced to buck that those social conventions, plus draw from you know her own internal bravery. You know, I mean, it wasn't just a trip across country. I mean, this was danger. This was fraught with danger. Did you get any sense from her about how she was able to just summon up the 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 courage, the fortitude, whatever it took for her to do this? I think there's two important pieces to sort of mention here. And I think one of them is that we have to situate this into the context of the colonies at the time. And there is certainly a hegemonic European culture there because uh, for many years at that point, the Dutch had effectively controlled uh, at least the the political discourse and culture of the country. So certainly um, it's, it's not an arguable point to say that there is a European culture there, but there is also a kind of parallel other culture um, from the native people who, of course, pre-existed Europeans. And I think when you superimpose them both on each other, you sort of have to realize that there are nuances to the gender roles. Um, And again, I'm not an expert on this period, but what I would say from my research with Martha is that uh, there there, there were men and women roles in this time and in this place. And in the traditional Malay culture at that time and at that place, I think that they were more or less traditional in, in the respect that we would regard the divisions as traditional. However, if you were Dutch or if you were of the Dutch class, you were sort of elevated in society. You were of a higher caste and you were conferred certain privileges because of that. So Dutch women were allowed certain liberties and they were... Uh, not, I think, as, how do I put this? Um, They were not as frowned upon for having those liberties as perhaps certain Indonesian women would have. So the interesting thing is, of course, Martha was biracial um, because her mother was Malay, but her mother was also uh, royalty Malay. She was uh, the daughter of a Raja. So actually, in both of those uh, spheres, Martha was quite high regarded. She was, you know, daughter of a Dutch admiral. She was also the daughter of Malay royalty. So I think she had a great esteem in her community and her peers, and I think that uh, instilled some of this iron will of hers and some of this confidence, because I think she was treated with a certain deference that perhaps not every woman was at the time. I think, and this is sort of the second point I wanted to bring up with her personal upbringing, her mother sounded very similar to her. Uh, There's a passage in the book where it talks about um, her mother was very haughty. Um, Martha was not so much haughty, but she had this, she had a very quick tongue. And her mother would uh, really flout some of the societal norms if they didn't fit in with what she wanted. So, for instance, her mother apparently got really, really good at the game Bridge, and she really liked playing it. But a woman at that time, even a Dutch woman, wasn't really supposed to play games with your superiors. You you had a certain people in your class and you were allowed to have little soirees or perhaps um, 
an afternoon lunch and you could play bridge, you could sip tea, you could socialize together. You weren't really supposed to do those. You weren't supposed to have those activities with someone of a lower caste or a higher caste, which is something we can probably also recognize from our social system. However, Martha's mother would invite uh, the wives of much higher ranking officers over to her home because she wanted to beat them. And she was very, very good at bridge and she just wanted really good uh, partners. And she didn't care what people said at all. And she didn't care what that meant for her husband's relationship with the, the husbands of these men. So again, I think uh, Martha was raised in a, a, a funny way that her mother was uh, certainly a very strong woman. She wasn't raised with some of the European ideals of um, propriety although she was certainly a very graceful woman and, and very proper. I think she wasn't squeamish and she wasn't raised to be squeamish. Um, and I think her father was very, I, I would describe him as a feminist, even though the, this idea of feminism comes much after this time and that maybe it's sort of retroactive to assign that label to him. But Martha told me consistently, and this is also in the book, that her father was, was very, uh, he emphasized the point of his daughter's needed education and he saw this not only as um, a way to enrich them and, and to, to make them intelligent, but also he saw it as a fallback in case marriage didn't work. And he really said, you need something to, to subsist off of in case you know, your marriages don't work. So there's an element of he expected them to be traditional in the respect that they would get married. But he also wasn't putting all of his chickens in the same basket, all of his eggs in the same basket. And I think, <laughs> you know, I, I well, think that that, that idea because, is, is, yeah. Uh, that's it, interesting because I always say like my very, father, my father who was born in 1914, was the first feminist I ever knew. Yeah. So yeah, maybe I think, some of those, um, those older men had uh, more modern ideas. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Right. Um, but I also yeah, think, you know, well, if, if this, if, if you think of if you think of this this particular man, her father, I mean, he was raised um, in a, in a in a Dutch farming and fishing community with very strong roots, uh-huh. um, and he comes from this, this you know small town in the Netherlands, and he travels across the entire world and, and becomes an officer. And I think that amount of of world experience and world travel is going to going to mark you, and it's it's going to mark. Um, probably your views on what's possible and what's proper. And I think yeah. perhaps for a man of that time, he was um, he was very open-minded because of that, you know. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So it sounds like she was raised in an environment where she was told she could rather than couldn't. That's an assumption on my part, of course, but that's what it sounds like. I, I think so. I, you know, I think she was a little bit indulged because she was privileged, and I think she was also allowed because uh-huh. her parents um, flouted a lot of rules. And um, I think the children picked that up. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Okay, so uh, nevertheless, even for spirited people, um, war is daunting. War is fraught with all sorts of dangers and life-threatening dangers, not just social uh, uh, repercussions. Um, so you know, maybe her, her social uh, uh, upbringing uh, led her to believe that she could do some things and, and uh, try for doing things uh, that other people may not have felt. But still, I mean, she was in a war zone. She was in war, and she did all this. I mean, it, it, it just astounding. When you were interviewing her, did she 
see that as astounding? Um, she was very humble about her story, and she <laughs> it wasn't that she lacked confidence. She, as I think I've, I've described, she, she was a very confident woman, but I don't think she ever thought of her story as being something that would be widely um, read or something that would be that, that, that many, many people would want to read, I suppose. And she always said, I, I want to tell people my story, and I want my story to be out there. I want people to know what my family went through. But she never seemed to think that there was um, anything uh, of independent, you know, remarkableness about that. It, it was it was sort of just that she, she didn't want the story to die without people knowing that it had happened. Um, mm-hmm. But it didn't come from a place of... of self-importance or, or self-aggrandizing. Um, I think also, and perhaps perhaps to know this for sure, I would have to interview people of her, um, her, her peers, I suppose. When everyone you know in your generation was involved in the war, certainly every family you know, every friend you had, maybe the story to you doesn't seem as outstanding because everyone you know has a war story. And I think, you know, I think to her that's probably what happened because after the war, too, she worked for the European Defense Commission in Paris and she was a secretary for them and she traveled with them to Baghdad, to to all over the place. And so, you know, even after the war, she was saturated with the war and she was saturated with people working in all levels of the war. And I think, um, you know, maybe in Canada really would have been the first time and by that time she was in her 30s, that would have been the first time that she had met people who maybe didn't have direct ties with the war. Um, yeah. And by that point, perhaps she already thought, you know, this is sort of normal that people have these incredible stories. I, you know, I certainly don't think this is normal. I certainly think her story is astounding. Um, and yeah. in the many war stories that I've heard, I've certainly not heard many of her level of, of bravery and independence and, um, I, I, I think among war stories, hers is is remarkable. Yeah. What did and you said she had a career after the war. Yes, she sounds like a rather original. Uh, it sounds like a rather significant career as well. It was um, to to some extent. Uh, as far as I can tell, there were some ups and there were some downs, as perhaps everyone's careers have. Um, she originally wanted to go back to the colonies, which at the time was having a bit of a, I guess you could call it a revolution, and wanted independence from the Dutch. So this was after World War II in in the late 40s and and early 50s. She wanted to go there with the Dutch War Department and presumably work as an interpreter um, and a secretary, kind of a hybrid role. And what she said to me was that she had accepted the position, and then she talked to her father, and she said, her father very, very rarely gave her advice on what to do or not to do, and she said, and this is her words, he never told me not to do anything, which I think gives you an understanding of her upbringing. But um, she did say that at this moment he turned to her and he said, I would rather you not go. Mm-hmm. And because he almost never gave those pronouncements, she respected that wish, and instead she took up a department uh, department position with the European Defense Council in Paris. Um in a way to continue her work, but not in the relative danger of the colonies at that time, because, and I'm not going to go into detail, but 
the revolution in the colonies was very bloody. Uh, yeah. It was very chaotic. And I think there, there was a, a very good chance she could have been targeted um, because she's biracial, because she represents the oppressing power at the time. Um, you know, uh, there's, there was significant danger with that. So she, she worked in Paris. She worked there for many years. She traveled a lot. Then she went to Montreal because she spoke French, and she was there um, also with the Dutch government. And eventually, interestingly enough, she became a librarian. Ah. <laughs> I, well, I don't know why that strikes me so funny. I, I guess because we, uh, the assumption is the librarian is quiet and you know safe and secure, and this woman comes from the right. you know, yeah, yeah, which probably says a lot about our assumptions about librarians. But <laughs> it does. But librarians have a have a snarky side, and they have a a little bit of a you know fight for freedom of information side, and I think that's um, that was her to a T. I would have definitely loved to have met with her at that time of her life and, and sort of hear all of her energy. She also built she built her own house in Ottawa. She built a log cabin sort of looking house um, by yeah. herself, of course. <laughs> and um, she, had, she had a very self-determined life before. Um, eventually she moved back to the Netherlands because her sisters were ailing. I believe at that time she had retired and, and moved there to help care for them. Yeah. Interesting. And then, um, did she have family left in the Netherlands when you knew her? She she had some very extended family through. So her father's family comes from the Netherlands. They were based in in Middelburg, and through that side of the family, she had had some remaining uh, people who who at, at the time that I was living there, they that side of the family was then in Belgium, which is below the Netherlands. So um, I think she had sort of a great-grandniece and a great-grandnephew, and, and that's really it. Um, her family was greatly diminished after the war, and, and um, I think only two of her siblings had children. Um, the remaining children and their died, and, and their children now live in the States. Um, wow. So there's, there's Do you know her really children? I mean, have you met, have you met um, any of her fa- extended family? You know, I haven't, and I sent them a letter in the mail asking if they wanted a copy of the book, and I, I don't know if it got lost or, or something. I've never heard back from them. I've tried to reach out to them. I had their phone number, but they moved, um, and they're now unlisted. So oh, when I, I guess when I have some extra funds for a PI, I'm going to try to reach out to them again. I, I don't know their current address anymore. Huh. Well, it shouldn't be. I, I actually know a PI. You want me to call her? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We we can track it, it, these people down, but I mean this. I, I think it would know, be a really that, lovely moment to sort of to sort of show up at their house and say, "I have this incredible story that is actually part of your story, and I would love to, you know, I'd love to share it with you because yeah. this is your family history." I mean, oh. how cool would it be to have someone show up at your house with a book about your family history? I think that'd be. Amazing. Oh my gosh, I would I would just go wild over that. I mean, I I come from mongrel stock, and so most you know, I mean, uh, uh, it was only until a, a, a few years ago that um, I started learning uh, about what my family history was. I have a distant cousin in St. Louis who started doing family research. And, oh, gosh, I mean, we thought we were German because my last name is Stark, of course, and turns out we're not mm-hmm. German at all. We're Irish, you know. I mean, and, and there's a big long story about, you know, how that name Stark came about. And, you know, I mean, so learning things about your family is, is just can just be fascinating. Um, and I'll bet they would be so delighted 
you know, to, to see this. They may not even know that they're related to this person. It could happen. I think um, the, chil- the, the children of her siblings, so her direct nieces and nephews, I think they know parts of the story. I mean, they, they must from their parents. But, you know, as it extends down, and I, I think they have grandchildren by now, um, I think a lot of the pieces get lost. And certainly, oh, yeah. and, and I think this is the most important part, that this, this book... Um, this book that we've been talking about has, uh, it, it's just studded with, with pictures. Um, and these extended family would, would not have seen the images, even if they had heard the story before. Yeah. Well, now talking about her documents, I mean, I, looking through the book, you have a, a, just a, an amazing array of uh, um, copies of documents and historical documents from World War II. I would think museums would be very interested in some of those. Uh, did she leave this stuff to a museum? She did. She left it to the, um, in English you would call it the Indonesian um, History Institute in the Netherlands. It's based in Amsterdam or uh, The Hague. Um, she willed all of her documents to them. It, actually, interesting note here, um, and before I say that, I also just want to say that my phone will die rather soon. Um, oh, no. So in, we still in have 15 case, minutes. Case, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I did charge it before we talked, but I think we've had so much energy, we just have taken it out. But um, I, I will say, if I get cut off, you can just end the show and, and promote the book. But um, in terms of this, this, this institute, there was actually a lot of difficulty because Martha was quite sick in the last year of her life, and a lot of moments were touch and go, and we weren't sure how long she was going to make it. And um, I still needed a lot of these documents to finish the book. I was scanning, you know, letters and photographs and still archiving as I went. Um, and it was really nerve-wracking to think I needed to get this done before she passed away because once she passed away, um, all of these boxes would be sent to this institute. Um, so it was a race against time to finish this book. Well, and you told me that that race ended pretty much neck and neck. Didn't you tell me that... You came out with the book. You, the book came out, and you took a tour. And how long after that did she die? She died two weeks after that. And that was actually – so the book was published on a Friday, and I graduated on a Saturday morning. I got the book off the press. I ran to her house, <laughs> and I let her hold it. Um, and we talked about it, and she was very sick at that time. And then I left Saturday afternoon, and I never saw her again because she died two weeks later. So it was oh, – um, there literally was not, a, you know, a day more that they could have had it done. Mm. Amazing, amazing. And I believe in the power of people's stories. I believe that that we all want someone to know our story after we leave. So even though I don't tend to believe in, you know, ooey-ooey, you know, uh, kinds of, of uh, uh, philosophies, I do believe that people can keep hanging on for, for a while, um, I, I think that she probably, once she saw that her story would be alive, you know, I mean, it, it was okay. I, I don't know. I mean, I know that's anthropomorphizing, I guess, if that's the right word. But since that's I never actually, met her. Um, I actually knew that that was true because before she met me, I was told by one of her caretakers, a legal caretaker, that she had wanted to be euthanized because the quality of her life had gone down so much with her um, sensory um, handicaps. And the fact that um, she, she at the time was worried that she might be struggling with cancer again. She she had beaten breast cancer earlier in her life in Canada. And so she, she had planned to be euthanized before she became um, what she feared as invalid. 
And then after meeting me, she said she changed her mind and she rescinded um, her plans to be euthanized because she wanted to hold on for this book. She wanted to finish this book. And um, I, I didn't know that until much later. Someone had told me, but as we progressed and she got sicker and sicker, she would um, she would always ask me when I came in that day to help her. She would say, how many pages is the book? Tell me how many pages. She always how it was coming. And, and that was the focus for her, really, every week was she would say, I remembered something. I need to tell you. I, I remembered this bit of the story, and I tried to write it down, and she couldn't see anything, so it was always just scribbles. We tried using a voice recorder, which she could speak into, but she could never remember which sequence of buttons to press. And it, it was always frantic feeling. It was always uh, hectic, but it was it was a very beautiful thing, too. How now that this book is done and published, I'm sure that you have the pride and that every author feels when they actually hold their book in their hand. It's almost like giving a birth, you know, to a, a much lesser degree. It's almost like giving birth. I mean, here, here, you have this labor, uh, and you can hold it in your hand, and you can hold it up for people to see, and it's going to be there forever. And so there's that kind of pride and sense of accomplishment. But because of the topic of this book, and because of the person that this woman was does that how does that add to your experience as an author it definitely has there's a story about the titanic um well one of the guys who was going through and unearthing the relics of the titanic going to the shipwreck he said there's this moment where he opened a perfume bottle and there was still perfume in it the bottle was intact and amidst all the sodden you know, smelly, rotting, uh, barnacle-covered stuff he had dug up, which is largely um, a mess, there was this pristine bottle. He was able to open that and smell it, and for a second, it was real to him. The Titanic was real, the grandeur, the ballrooms, you know, the third class, the first class, all the stories of it was really visceral. And for me, um, this process has done that for this time and, and for this woman this family, but also for this whole area of the colonies, which I knew so little about previously because I, I listened to their music and I held the letters which they had touched and I touched the thumbprints on her internment documents which had been, you know, uh, stamped and approved by the Japanese officials. And I have gone through the photos that have burnt edges from the war that her brothers went in in Australia. And, in, and it's all real to me. And I think um, when I give people the book, I just hope that, you know, it's it's a good moment, but it's also a moment where I hope that they feel this this fleeting realness of history as well. Um, and I think that's really what sticks with me, um, as well as when when I read it uh, and people who have met her, she has a very distinctive voice and a very distinctive way of talking, and it always reminds me of that. And I can really I can really hear the book in her voice, and um, I, I I miss her a lot. I, I saw her many times over the three years that I knew her, so. Reading it gives me a sense of kind um, of being connected with her again, I guess. Yeah. Did she give you anything to take away from this besides the book to hold in your hand? She gave me a necklace, um, which I have, and I took one photo. Um, there was multiple copies of it, so I didn't feel that taking it, but I have one photo of her that I took, and it's her in 1952 in Paris. Um, in her office across the Eiffel Tower, and she's writing on a typewriter. And um, <laughs> I, I, I like that image, and I like the idea that she she spent a lot of her career writing, and um, our time together was always about writing as well. So I keep that in my wallet with me. Wow. Oh. 
you should frame that. Wallets, wallets tear up pictures. <laughs> I know it's it's in it's in a plastic uh, archival bag, but I I should put it in a frame. Yeah, you should. You should make a make a make a a, a copy for your your wallet, but save that original. <laughs> Um, and uh, thank you. I mean, that, that's interesting uh, what you took away from that. But what I guess what I was looking at was, you know, something more spiritual. Did you take away something more esoteric from this experience? I think I took away. Um, Martha told one of she she had a friend in the Netherlands, and I talked with this friend once or once or twice. So I didn't meet her very often. And at one point, this friend told me after she died that um, Martha had said that I reminded her of herself. Um, mm. And I think that is one of the best compliments that I've ever gotten. And I think uh, I have tried to take away some of her spirit and resilience. And certainly there were a lot of obstacles in making this book. Funding for the advance, for the publishing advance was hard. I had to intern for six months at the publishing company to design this myself. Um, I was doing this on top of a full course load. I was working on the jobs. It was really, 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 really hard. And I always had no idea what I was doing either because I was new to all of this. So I tried to pull some of her and her family's, you know, um, resilience and resourcefulness in the process. And I think I I came out of it with a little bit more grit. Um, And I hope that that's what she saw in me when she said that I reminded her of, of, of myself. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a little secret. I don't have the the depth of wisdom that Martha had, I'm sure, but I'll tell you a little secret. You say you didn't know what you were doing. None of us knows what we're doing. You just act as if you did. <laughs> <laughs> little That's secret. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> we never know, you know, and and when we do think we know what we're doing, somehow or other nature or karma or whatever comes up and slaps us in the rear end and lets us know that we really don't. We're just deluding ourselves. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's a lot of fake until you make it. But that's that's part of that's the right. that's part of the process. That's a skill. But, <laughs> that's um, right. That's right. Um, I, I just well, want to leave readers with the message that I will um I will share a link with you that you're welcome to post on the on the archive link that um okay. I'll have a website where people can enter in their information if they want to order a copy. And I will send okay. them an invoice, and they're welcome to pick their payment method and uh, a mailing address. This is something people oh, okay. are want to hear more about, and I'm happy to get a copy to them. Great, great. You send that to me. We'll put it on the website, and then um, and is it on Amazon? I'm assuming. It's not on Amazon, actually. Oh, you know what, what, what? You know, I wrote a book 100 years ago, and uh, a, a very accomplished author said to me, "You don't exist until you're on Amazon." So get it on Amazon, okay? Okay. <laughs> and it's called at at one time by Julia Airy, A I R E Y, at one time. A wonderful, beautiful story. Um, and I think of it more. It's not just a story about this m- marvelous, accomplished Martha, uh, o- older woman. This is a story about you as well. Um, and I hope that you realize that as you go through here, because this is a, a pivotal time for you, not only to link you with history, but to link you with women and strong women and women who accomplish things when they don't know that they can. Um, so, you know, you gave her a gift, but I think she gave you one too. 
<laughs> I think so too. I, I certainly think so too. A lot of um, the skills that I learned doing this, I, I use them every single day that I work as a reporter. My typing speed is very, very fast because I transcribed all of her interviews by hand. And um, that's just a, you know, that's a material example of a skill I use every day. But being able to listen, really listen and interview people is something that um, she she's definitely given me. And she's given me an appreciation of people's stories and, and, and of history that I think is going to stick with me. And that's, um, that's a very important thing. Well, and I think it'll stick with anyone who reads the book, quite frankly. It's a great book, a wonderful first effort here. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's just uh, amazing that you first crack out of the box, you come up with something like this. So what's in your future? What other books do you have um, that you're working on? I'm currently working on a long-term investigation, actually, a reporting investigation into reproductive rights. So I can't uh, can't say too much about it because it's still under wraps, but that will be coming out in the spring. Um in terms of more books, I would like to do another project similar to this. I'd like to do another um, little bit of a ghost memoir, I guess I'd call it. Um, I think there's a lot of other people who have these interesting nuggets of stories buried, and I think when you're able to put it into their words with um, first-hand documents and photos, it's it's a great introspection into history, and I'd love to find more more bits of history that aren't as mainstream in the U.S. and be able to present them to people like this. So right now I'm uh, I'm a little more focused on the reporting career, but as that takes off, I'm going to I'm going to be scanning a little bit for uh for stories that pop up. Great. Well, I think that um uh, a, at one time by Julia Airy, very uh, amazing book, very interesting read, a great snapshot into uh, a historical point in time, uh one that is not often um viewed. So I thank you for doing this, Julia, and I hope you'll keep me in mind. And remember, you make this into audio book, and I'm your woman. <laughs> That's the plan. Okay. And I, I'm, uh, having heard Martha's voice from some of Julia's um, uh, audio tapes, uh, an amazing voice, an amazing woman. So there you have it. Any final words? We've got a minute and a half left, Julia, if you, and your phone hasn't conked out yet. So if you want to leave us with a, a sterling thought, now's your chance. Yeah, now that my iPhone has uh, sufficiently complied, I'd like to tell everyone that um, first read the book um, because it's wonderful and the story's wonderful, but also the idea in writing this book is also to inspire people to listen to their family stories. And there's a really great project with um, StoryCorps, yeah, it's called StoryCorps, that they try to host every Thanksgiving to allow people to go home and record stories of their family history with their elders. And I think everyone should take a look at that and should consider doing that this Thanksgiving to just really take time away from the hustle and bustle and really go past some of the the more surface uh, small talk questions that we have with relatives we haven't seen in a long time and really try to open um, open the book and open the conversation. Try to capture a little bit of history, you know, ask to see grandmother's photos or ask to see your great-granddaughter's photos. Um, yeah. I think you'll be surprised at what everyone really has to unearth. And if you don't have living relatives of that age, you know, um, find someone in your neighborhood who you can interview. I think that there's a lot of um, history that, that is to be treasured and loved and, um, and unearthed. And we all do a little bit of that. And you don't need to write a book. Uh, you don't even need to share it with anyone. But it's something that is really fulfilling. And um, I agree with you. And what's that called? Story Core, C-O-R-E? Story Core. 
Yeah, um, I'll, I'll send you a link as well to include if you'd like in the promo. Um, Terrific. There's so much technology that allows us to do these recordings and transcription, so there's really yeah. there's no And there's more to life Everyone people than this. a keyboard and thumbs, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. lift your head up and look at the people around you, and uh, <laughs> you will find amazing things out there. I end the show with a quote, Julia, and the quote for today is from D. Ten- Tenorio, um, who wrote Tempting the Enemy. If there's one thing you should understand better than humans, it's that fe- than the humans, it's that females should never be ruled out by virtue of strength. Some of us have ways to equalize the equation. Thank you for joining us on Three Women Three Ways. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Say hi to spring's most amazing style steal at Old Navy. One day only, today. Women's tanks are just $2. And don't forget to come in now to redeem your super cash. Hurry in. High fashion, Old Navy. Valid 429, limit 5 per customer. Select styles in stores only.